Welcome. Let me add my welcome. So glad that you're here. Good morning to all. We have some um, that are not among us this morning, some of our family that are traveling, serving Jesus. I want to remind you to continue to pray for John and Michael as they travel to various places around the world, including Lebanon and um, Switzerland and Romania. Uh, Keep them in prayers as well as their families that are here without them. Uh, Also want to say a special welcome to uh, the Packer fans among us. Uh, The reason I, yeah, the Packers, uh, you may not even know why I say that today. Turn on the TV at around 3.30, you'll find out why. But I say that uh, jokingly um, to bring up a point this morning is that uh, if you're a Packers fan living in Texas, you are a bit of an exile uh, in a place where you are a foreigner and a stranger and sometimes ostracized. And I know there are some among us not brave enough to wear their colors today, I see, but uh, nevertheless, they're here. And that brings us to, uh, in a silly way, that brings me to First Peter. So if you have a Bible, please go ahead and turn with me to First Peter chapter 1. And First Peter is all about living as a follower of Jesus in exile, where you're not the majority, where you don't share all the same values and practices as the people around you. And guess what? That was true in the first century for these people that Peter is writing to, and that's true for you and I today in 2019, and increasingly so. We find ourselves on the outside, uh, and more and more ostracized um, in the minority for our faith in Jesus. But don't be discouraged about that, okay? I'm actually not discouraged about that. I'm actually, in some ways I'm discouraged about that, but in many ways I'm excited for what that means for the true church of Jesus Christ as we, as we are in these days, because the light shines bright in darkness, and I think there are lots of ways we see evidence of, of, of darkness today, um, but as you're in exile, you need to be prepared with the right mindset, with the right equipment, with the right focus, with the right hope, okay? So that's what Peter is trying to do in First in Peter, is to help these believers navigate exile, So this morning, um, I'm going to read the passage to us, and I would love for you to follow along. It's important that you see that what we're talking about is not coming from the mind of the preacher, but it's here in God's Word. And so I encourage you to follow along as I read the passage. And as we read the passage, I want to go ahead and give you a question to be thinking about as you hear God's Word this morning. And that is, as we read through verses 13 through 21, okay, 1 Peter 1, 13 through 21, what would you think, this is your opinion, this is my opinion, um, but what do you think are the most important terms or the most important words for understanding this passage here, okay? So I'm going to read it to us, but kind of have that in the back of your mind as we read through the passage this morning, okay? What, what do you think is probably the most important term or the most important word that Peter uses in this paragraph here, okay? So join me, if you will, beginning in verse 13. 
where Peter continues like this. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways and inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of the Lord. So just by quick uh, way of review, if you haven't been here the last few weeks, one of the key things we've looked at uh, as Peter has given us this letter, as God has given us this letter through Peter, is that he's writing, uh, according to chapter 1, verse 1, to elect exiles. And we've talked week after week about how important both of those words are and the juxtaposition of those words together. The idea of being exiled, as I talked about just a few minutes ago, being on the outskirts, uh, of not being in your homeland, of being a foreigner, foreigner or stranger to the majority culture. Uh, these believers were exiles. But the best way to survive as an exile is to also know that you have a citizenship somewhere else and that you are dearly loved. And that's the idea of this word elect that he puts right alongside this word exile. We are elect exiles. We don't belong exiles and yet we belong to God. That's the contrast there, and that's the comfort there, that here we are, often misplaced, often out of touch, but we are the dearly loved, elect, chosen of God. And if you're here this morning and you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you have made a choice to follow him, that's wonderful. What is also even more comforting than that is to know that the only reason that you found God is because God first came after you. And in his grace, he sought you out. And in his grace, he sent his son to come after you, to die on the cross for you and to bring you into this family of faith. So the best way to survive as an exile, the best way to survive as an outcast is to know that though you don't belong, you belong to someone greater. And that someone is the creator of the universe. That someone is the son of God who bled because he loves you so much. And therefore, you can endure. 
So that's a bit of the background, and, the, and it kind of comes out again as we read our passage this morning. So three things that there's, there's so much here in these verses, but three things I just want to highlight this morning from lift out of this text. Uh, three things we'll see, the direction of our hope, the nature of holiness, and then the motive of it all, okay? So first of all, uh, beginning in verse 13, let's look back again at verse 13 where he says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And notice that he begins by talking about our mindset again. To be sober-minded is to be clear-headed, obviously contrasted uh, in other places in Scripture with the idea of drunkenness, to be out of control. But here he's saying to be sober-minded, to be careful in thought. And if you're going to live in exile, you have to have the right thoughts to guide you in being faithful to God in those difficult times, not only sober minded, but ready for action. And the old KJV, you might have a note on this below as I do in your Bible. The old KJV translate this, translate this literally from the Hebrew, girding up the loins of your mind. Maybe you've heard that phrase before, girding up your loins, get ready for action. And the, the idea here is that in that first century, they often, men and women wore kind of dresses, skirts, thanks be to God, we, you know, uh, we don't move to that. But anyway, they would take their dress and to gird up their loins was to get ready for the race. And they would take that dress and literally bring it through their legs and kind of tuck it into their belt. Looks pretty funny. Okay, think about like a, wearing a diaper, how that might look, so that you can run fast. And so that you, you can run with intention. Again, this idea of thinking correctly, gird up the loins of your mind so that you can run, so that you can endure. But the second phrase of verse 13 is where I get this idea of the direction for our hope. The direction for our hope, <clears throat> excuse me, where he says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it's this idea of setting your hope, or some translations say fixing your hope on the grace that is to come, that's in Jesus, but that is future. So Christ has already come as Peter writes this letter, but he is telling his readers that Jesus is going to, become, Jesus is going to come again. And set your hope on the revelation or the apocalypse is really the literal word for that revelation. Set your hope on the apocalypse, the return, the uncovering, the unveiling of Jesus Christ again. Your hope should be set upon Jesus. And that's the only hope in exile that is going to help you endure in exile is that hope in Jesus. That he's coming back, that we're going to be with him and celebrate with him. So set your hope on that. Fix your hope on that. Now this morning... Uh, as I got up to leave early and get here this morning, um, we have one bedroom that's at the front of our house, and unfortunately, the three-year-old is in the front bedroom. So often as I leave, if I make too much noise with the keys or I pop the unlock with the key fob and don't just do it manually, he hears that, and he wakes up. So as I'm backing out of the driveway, this little three-year-old 
rolls up the window and looks out with this pass. He said, Daddy, where are you going? I'm going to work. He said, and we're going to Papa's house? Because he knows this little three-year-old has heard for the last couple days that Papa's birthday was on Friday. And today, after church, we're going to go celebrate Papa. And so what has been fixed in his mind? This idea of going and being with Papa. So last night at bed and this morning as he surprises me, you know, when are we going to Papa? Today after church. I'll see you in a little bit, buddy. Bye. And that's the idea of, of being fixed, of having our, our eyes and our hearts focused upon that day that Jesus will come again. But where is my hope typically fixed? Where is my hope typically set? Here, Peter says that the hope should be fixed forward and Godward. But often, my hope is fixed manward and todayward, right? Nowward, if that's a word. I don't think it is. Um, it occurs to me, uh, what, is, what is hope? I probably should have started here, but w- w- when you think about the word hope, what, what is hope? It, isn't, it, isn't it basically about our expectations? Isn't hope basically about what we expect? And Peter is saying, your, your great hope is not earthward, is not now, but is forward and Godward. It occurred to me this week that as we think about our hopes and our expectations, that my upset often reveals where my hope is set. My upset often reveals what my hope is set on, does it not? If I think about what I'm disappointed about, where I've been disappointed, then often that reveals what my hope has been set upon. And rather than Christ and rather than his, rather than his kingdom to come, my hope is actually set uh, now and on something human to give me what God has promised to give me. I think about the uh, old hymn that so many of us knew, know, grew up on. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, right? My hope is built upon Jesus. Not upon my health, not upon the status of my relationships, the status of my career, not upon my wealth or financial security, but my hope is fixed upon Jesus and particularly the kingdom that is to come. What are you hoping for this morning? And is that, is that hope, uh, can it hold the expectation of your heart? Can it fulfill the longing of your heart? And if it upsets you, if it goes away, will it crush your heart? Or will it be like, yeah, I really hope that would work out. But my heart isn't fixed upon that. It's not set upon that earthly thing. 
Not only do we see the direction of our hope here, but in the ongoing verses, verses 14 through 17, we see the nature of holiness. The nature of holiness. I bet that you think that's a pretty important term in this passage, right? Did any of you think about that? Verse 14, he says, uh, as obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And this is language similar to Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where he says, don't be conformed to this world. Don't be like you used to be, Peter says, but as obedient children's Don't be conformed to the patterns of former ignorance, but verse 15, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, I bet um, you have some common perceptions about holiness, as, as many people do. Maybe your perception of holiness has something to do with Holiness is being very quiet, holy, and you walk in to a place of worship and it's quiet and serene, and that equates to holiness. Maybe you kind of have this thought that holiness is really uh, something boring or something uninteresting, or maybe you grew up in a tradition where holiness meant that, that women wear long skirts and they don't wear makeup, and that's what holiness looks like. And maybe when you think of holiness, you think about the Old Testament and you think about all these rules and and morality that you should do and not do. And while there there is certainly a moral aspect to holiness, there's another idea of holiness that's really at this root of this word holy, and it's the idea of being set apart being special. When God says he is holy, he is certainly saying that he is righteous in all his ways and all of his uh, actions. God is holy, but he is also claiming that he is like none other. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and this word holy has that idea of being special, of being set apart. And so when Peter's writing to these exiles, he is actually encouraging them Don't worry about fitting in because your calling is actually to stand out, to be separate from, to be distinct from, to be different than the majority. To be holy is to be set apart. Now, Peter will go on and he will give some specifics. If you want to turn with me to chapter 4, he's going to kind of play this out in more detail later, but if you just read along with me the first seven verses of chapter four, he does give some examples of what this former passion might have been and what this unrighteous living might have been that they were to uh, no longer conform to. So beginning in verse one, he says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, let me slow down and say that again. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Remember those sober-minded and thinking words at the beginning of verse 13? Here he says, arm yourselves with that way of thinking, not of success, but of suffering and sacrifice. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. 
so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, there's that word again, passion, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Separate, distinct from. Verse 3, for, for, the, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. And here's some examples, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. And let's end at verse 7. Because again, you see this repetition. Verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and again, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And so, Peter will pick this up as we go further in his letter. But the idea is God is different from and therefore you and I be different from, distinct from what is around us. Why? Because we were created to be holy. We were created for a separate purpose, and he'll begin to tell us what that purpose is in chapter 2. Can't resist going there right now. But uh, Verse 9, chapter 2, verse 9, sorry, this isn't on a screen, but he says, uh, you, are, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why, verse 9? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And we'll get more to that in chapter 2. But you are to be set apart, you are to be distinct, because he created you for a holy purpose, a set-apart purpose, to proclaim his excellencies, to demonstrate, to broadcast, to showcase this holy God are his holy people for special purposes here. Um, even as you look at this idea of holiness back in the Old Testament, um, you have this idea in Exodus and in Leviticus that there were not just holy things that you were to do with, but there were things that we were created for holy purposes. So you have tables in the tent of meeting and, and tables in the temple and knives and, and utensils that are called holy. Now, how can a table be holy? How can a table or a, a knife or a spoon or even uh, vestments, garments that these priests had be holy? How can a, a shirt or a table live uprightly? Well, the answer is it can't. It has no animate life. But God calls those things holy because he has set them apart. This is a special place. This is a special table where you do sacrifices. This is a special garment that my set-apart people wear. And the whole idea here, again, of holiness is that you and I were created for special purposes. 
for a special occasion, for a special representation as exiles in this broken world. You're holy, set apart. Therefore, live that way because you have this holy calling. Which brings us to the third heading here this morning, which is the motive of it all. The motive of it all. Now, I asked you in the beginning, what, what word or what term do you think is most important here in this passage? And here's where I show my hand and give you what I think is uh, the best answer to that question. Okay? And I think the most, perhaps, the most important word in this passage is the first word. Look at it again with me. What's the first word? Therefore. Therefore. What's the motive for it all? What's the motive for holiness? What's the motive for representing Jesus? What's the motive for standing apart? It's therefore. It's for it's the motive is because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And what is the therefore therefore? In verse 13, he's referring back to everything that he said in verses 1 through 12. And that is, I've chosen you. You're my elect people. I've called you by name. I've brought you into my family. Therefore, be holy. Be different. Because I've loved you. I've placed my love on you and selected you to be my, represent, my representatives in, at, in this place, at this time, not only have I elected you, but I have given you salvation. Verses 3 through 5, I've caused you to be born again. So the rationale for holiness is not to earn God's favor. The motive for holiness is because God has put his favor on you. And it's fundamentally different. It's fundamentally different than religion that says obey and get God's favor versus Christianity, the good news that says God has put his favor on you undeservedly with mercy and therefore love him in return. I have elected you. I have given you salvation. I have given you an inheritance. We talked about a few weeks before, verse 4, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept, secured in heaven for you. Therefore, live like you're loved. Live like you're set apart. Live like you have the seal of approval of the King of kings and Lord of lords because he loves you. That's the motivation of it all. He says at the, the end uh, of that passage, verses 10 through 12, we talked about briefly last week during communion, that these, this salvation is, is something that the prophets didn't even fully understand. They longed to see what these prophecies were about, and the believers that Peter is writing to understand. They get what Jesus has done, and us, 2,000 years later, at the completion of the New Testament, and the testimony of the apostles and prophets see that Jesus came in space and time. That Jesus didn't love us in theory, but he loved us by coming and he loved us by bleeding. And therefore, the cost of his love is a cost that is precious without determination because it was at such a great cost. Therefore, live 
distinctly. Not by guilt. Not to impress a, a, a moral or uh, not to live up to a moral standard or to please a, a upstanding moral father or mother, but because Jesus, the Father, Son, and Spirit has smiled on you, shed the blood of Jesus for you, put the Spirit of God inside of you in order to empower you to be different. We make a difference by being different, and, and the motive for that difference, the motive for that holiness has to be God himself. Therefore, and if that's not enough, let me convince you with a few more proofs because this was the eye-opening part of this for me this week. The motive. Because let's just face it. I mean, you're here at church. People expect that good religious people are going to tell you to be good religious people, right? I mean, that's just normal. Religion involves living in a certain way. But what's unique about this good news is the motive by which we do that. Therefore, and he shows his hand further in verse 18, he says this, Reason, rationale, motive, verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Let me just stop right there. Anybody have any feudal ways that you've inherited for your, from your forefathers? Don't raise your hand. Some foolish, feudal, draining, dead-end ways of living that you inherited from some people that you really love and did their best. Knowing that you were ransomed, bought, purchased, saved from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Underline that precious blood of Christ, perfect like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And what is Peter doing here? He's rolling out the motivation again. Therefore, knowing that God loves you so much, he bought you, not with a few bucks, not with a coupon, it wasn't buy one, get one free. And it's even good things that he compares it with silver and gold. I mean, he's not saying that he bought you with wood or in some type of barter, but he bought, he compares it to silver and gold, good things. But you were bought not, saved not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus. Now, what's the most What's the biggest payment you could make? What's the biggest payment you could make to help somebody out? The biggest payment I could make is the equity in my home. And unfortunately, it's not as much equity as I would hope. But thankfully for Texas economics, uh, 
It's better than it was four years ago, right? But what, what's, the, what's the biggest purchase you could make? What's the greatest gift that you could give someone? If someone were ransom, if, if someone held someone you loved ransom, what's the highest price you could pay? And Jesus says, the highest, the highest value I could place on you is my very own life. Can't be measured in a mortgage. Can't be measured on the S&P. Doesn't equate to gold and silver. Can only be measured by the utmost of payments, blood. And what Peter is saying is that there's no better motivation for loving Jesus than the love of Jesus. I obey 'ly, if that's a word, fledgingly, too often by guilt rather than by grace. Too much because I think I should or somebody expects X. And what Peter is saying is be holy. Why? Because the love is greater than any payment you could possibly make. Is the greatest payment I could ever make was the blood of my own son. There's no greater payment. Knowing the preciousness of Jesus' love is the motive for loving and obeying Jesus. And that's not all. Verse 20, he goes on. He's laying this on. He's building this case that you can live in faithfulness and exile. Verse 20, look. A lamb without blemish or spot. Verse 20, he goes on. For he, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times. Now, he could have just put a period right there although they didn't have periods then, but, but he was made manifest in the last times. But between the last times and verse 21, he adds this phrase. And it's the motive again. He adds this phrase, for the sake of you. Therefore, because he's chosen you, he's caused you to be born again, he's given you an inheritance that is imperishable, unfading, never spoil. He's given you the Holy Spirit, angels along to look into this. He's bought you with the blood of Jesus and he's done this for the sake of you. He's done this for your sake. He's done this to display his love for you and me. And the problem is that I've heard this all my life. And the problem is a lot of you have heard this for a long time. And so it's like, uh, that's what the preacher says. And so we, I, can grow cold to it. 
but the blood of Jesus was for me and for you. So don't be guilty. Don't be ashamed. Be grateful and be holy because we're beloved. Does your heart need that this morning? You know you're supposed to obey God. I know I'm supposed to obey God. The problem is Peter's guilt-driven too, right? I mean, if there's a guy that knew guilt, it was Peter. When at the very beginning, when Jesus calls him, Jesus tells him to cast his net to the other side and all these fish show up, and what's Peter's reaction? Peter says, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. He knows he's guilty. And then Jesus, a few years later, says, you're going to deny me. Peter says, no way, man, even if, not all, even if all the others, I won't. No, you're going to deny me. Before rooster crows, you'll deny me. Poor Rooster Crest three times. You'll deny me. And if there was anyone that could live his life in guilt and shame for the Savior, it might be Peter. And what is Peter doing? He's saying, be holy. Be holy because you're beloved. Because Jesus knows you're a screw-up, and he died on the cross for you anyway, just like he did me. So be holy because you're beloved. You don't need to be ashamed this morning. You need to know you're beloved, and therefore be different. Would you bow your head with me this morning and let's do some business with the Holy Spirit, with the Lord. You need to take a minute just to say, thank you, God. Thank you, God, for rescuing me. Thank you, God, for choosing me. Thank you, Jesus, for bleeding for me. To show me how much you care for me. Thank you, God. And maybe by the work of the Holy Spirit this morning, when you hear that word holiness... The Spirit has been working in your heart as you've heard these words to say, that little thing in my heart is unholy. I have not confessed, I have not given Lordship a 
of Jesus over that. And maybe right now you need to just confess and say, Holy Spirit, wash me of my sin. Renew me by the cleansing blood of Jesus and help me walk in the newness of life and holiness. Father God, we thank you that in a world that can sometimes feel so hopeless and so messed up and divided and petty and full of sickness and cancers and brokenness of relationships, that we have hope. It's not a hope here. It's not a hope now, but it's a hope that is secure in the grace and coming kingdom of Jesus. God, we thank you that in your grace you have chosen to love us. And we ask that in the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians, that love of Christ control us and that we conclude that we no longer live for ourselves but for him who died and gave his life for us Jesus we love you a little I'm asking that you help us to love you a lot more to transform us by your love and grace your loved sons and daughters. It's in the beautiful name of Jesus we ask. Amen.